Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a working film and TV editor, and for the last nine years, I've done over 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with the editors of the TV series The White Lotus, which has been nominated for Emmy Awards in the Outstanding Picture Editing in a Drama Series category. Heather Persons, ACE, has been nominated for her episode, Abductions, and John Valerio, ACE, has been nominated for his episode, Arrivederci. Heather has been nominated three times before for Emmys, three times for Ace Eddies, and for a BAFTA. She's edited features like Sunshine Cleaning and was an additional editor on My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Her TV credits include The Flight Attendant, How to Make It in America, and The Ron Clark Story. John won an Emmy for his Departures episode of Season 1 of The White Lotus and won an Ace Eddie for his Arrivederci episode from Season 2. He's also been nominated for another Ace Eddie and a BAFTA. His work includes TV series like Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, The Old Man, Tokyo Vice, and Parks and Recreation. Before I hop into our discussion with Heather and John, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to BorisFX.com and check out the Boris FX suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, John Valerio, ACE, and Heather Persons, ACE, on editing The White Lotus. What prompts you to vote for someone, what makes you think that is a project that I think deserves an Emmy? I try to watch as much as I can. I, first of all, obviously look at shows that I love. I look at all the shows I love. And sometimes that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like the fanciest editing. Sometimes it's just the most moving or, I mean, I guess mostly it's just the things that move me the most. Like for instance, I love um reservoir reservation Reservation dogs dogs. yep i love that show i'm just looking for things that resonate with me personally and then within those categories i do watch the what's nominated and then i do think about the editing 
So basically saying that if, if it's a good program, the editor must have had a lot to do with it. <laughs> yeah, because, because I know what it means to make something that, that works and connects with people because it's, it's hard to do that these days. There's so much out there. I totally agree with Heather. I think the you go through it and you look at everything and, you're, and it's overwhelming. The nice thing about the, you know, with you know, nominations, it does allow you to select a number of things. I choose the things that resonate with me that I was engaged with and I was moved by or laugh, whatever it is. I can't watch everything. So it's an unfortunate thing that there's so much great work out there that people are doing and they're not getting the recognition because... They're not like me that I'm fortunate enough to be on a show that everybody's everybody's watching. And then once the nominations are, I I, I do a deeper sort of, you know, dive into the shows and, and watch them. And it's so hard to, to you never know what an editor had, in, right? Like this editor pulled out some crazy tricks to make something work. And you'll never know that. As editors, I, I'm so, you know, proud of what we do because we're we're kind of like, you know, the unsung you know, heroes. No one really knows because it's always behind the scenes. I feel like the ones we work the hardest on are the ones that, you know, where the writing isn't great or, you know. The oh, yeah, totally. The problem ones are the ones that you have to work so hard on. Yeah. And then, you know, you can never really fix it. You can polish it, but. Yeah, it's only going to get to a certain place no matter what you do. Yeah. And it really comes down to the script. I mean, that's that's what I've learned. How do you stay ahead of the audience? Mike set it up by planting the seed at the beginning where you learn each season that somebody dies at the beginning. And what's interesting about Mike's work is he cares about character and human foibles. And so what's interesting is he set that up, but then he sort of went about his way of telling a story that he kind of usually does, you know, and there were things built in where you're like, oh, that guy seems dangerous. You know, it must be him. I think as the show evolved, we kind of were like, ooh, we could like. He leaned into it a little bit more, yeah, we, but it was just a hook at the yeah. start, I think, right? It was just a hook for him to get people into these characters. And it was never really about the mystery of whodunit once they're hooked in it, then he can sort of trick people into watching this story about these characters and their relationships. But yeah, it did evolve into that, though. I yeah, think. and that's really what he cares more about. He cares more about these like fallible, lovable, horrible people. He leaned into it more this second season than the first season. Like it was a little bit more plot devised with the murder mystery of who did it. And the second season, I, I know I had to be much more mindful of giving things away than in, in the first season because Tom Hollander, we talked about it all the time, the twirly mustache guy, like, oh, he's he's the bad guy. I just found like I was always trying to sort of lean away from that. Even once people started to suspect that he's up to something, you start to suspect that Quentin has ulterior motives and doesn't have the best of intentions. I always try to keep that revelation as far off as I could. You had more scenes with Tom Hollander being potentially more evil. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it was always a, a little bit of a dance. <laughs> I had the episode where he and Tanya first meet and first start to become friends. And I was trying really hard to make him seem just like so much fun and like the best friend that you'd meet on vacations. Loved Tanya. He loved her fashion and just wanted to be friends. And you know, we really tried to make him seem not scary. 
Yeah, that's kind of what I was leaning into was the ability to, through performance, really guide an audience in one way or another or hide it. We did modulate that. It's true. Yeah. And I think it was because the, the story was a little bit more plot driven. I think we were a little bit more conscious of viewers sort of reading into things. What are people going to think if we use this line reading? Is this a heavy handed line reading that's going to suggest something or this look? It was fun to play with what we were thinking these expectations were and then subverting them. Yeah, there was also the dynamic between Ethan and Cameron, which kind of escalated. You know, that was also a way to sort of distract people away from Quentin by thinking that maybe something, you know, bad would happen with those guys. That's a good point. So yeah, that, that was another yeah. way that we kind of... Leaning into other people to throw them off as red herrings a little bit. Yeah, that's right. You're right. You're right. Did you deliver all the episodes at once? Were you able to go back? Like once you'd finished the entire season, were you able to go back and like, oh, maybe I could sprinkle this reaction shot in or maybe I need to take that out because it's too much of a tell? We had that luxury in season one, but season two was a mad dash. It was so stressful. We were cutting while we were airing season one was like what you just said, but season two, no, we were we were on the clock and had no time. We were still cutting the last two episodes when the first premiered. Were you editing on location? And if so, why? What was the advantage to that? Or were you in LA? John and I both went to Italy for like a month each, editing in our hotel rooms. And then afterwards, we were in Hawaii because Mike has a house there. We're so blessed then. Cutting in Italy, living there for a month, and then living in Kauai. Uh, what was the value? I mean, they had to put you up. They had to fly you over. What was the value to the production, do you think, in having you in Italy for a month each? I don't know. Mike just likes having us around. There's a lot of second unit stuff. He liked having Heather and I there. He trusts us to go and find pieces that we feel are missing. Little connective transition things. It could be, you know, all of those landscapes and the B-roll and everything else. Those are things that Heather and I went and shot. We knew we kind of things we were looking for. Pieces that were missing, getting from one scene to the other. You know, I, you know, I remember Heather's like, oh, we need this, uh, the shot of the DeGrasso's. We can't just cut from them here to here. We had a, we, it'd be nice to have them coming down the hall and certain things like as we were in the, in the middle of cutting uh, inserts and things like that, it was helpful for him for us to be there to go and, handle all of that. It was more useful, not necessarily what, to have you cutting there, but to be working with second unit. I mean, it was valuable for us to be there. It's like, we really saw it. We were in it. We were breathing it and feeling it. And I think it that you understand the dailies better. You understand the geography. It's like, things just make more sense. And you also have more of an instinct about like, what's cool about this place? Because that's what's cool about the show. It's like, these people are in this extraordinary place. And if you kind of have a real sense of it, you can use it, whatever. Like when you were in the hotel, John was shooting all the portraits and stuff or whatever. You're like, oh, lemons are a big deal here. <laughs> or, you know, shoot the ocean. I don't know. It just brings like a scent and a, an authenticity and, and it makes it like come alive, you know? And it was the storytelling, of course, but it was also infused 
used by the mise-en-scene. Yeah, the, the location is a big character. And, yeah, it really was. And so it was always, what kinds of imagery can we get that's evocative of this scene or this storyline so that we build out this library of all this stuff. And then when we're cutting, we're able to add punctuation to scenes and, and elevate certain moments just from leaving the feeling that you have in one scene and then building off of that and going to this something dynamic that's also continuing that feeling and moving it forward. I don't really know uh, Jennifer Coolidge or Aubrey Plaza, but uh, they both seem like ad-libbers to me. What does it do for your editing to have a lot of ad-lib? Jennifer Coolidge is definitely an ad-libber. I mean, she's a deeply creative artist and she's a good friend of Mike's and he lets her rip. He wants to get the dialogue that he writes because he's a very specific storyteller. But then after he gets what he needs, he'll let her fly. A lot of times we'd find nuggets in there that were priceless. As long as it was supporting the storytelling, we would try to put in as many of those as possible. Aubrey wasn't really that ad-libby. Did you find her to be that? No, Aubrey was more, she'd experiment and play around within the performance and sort of this total spectrum of of emotion from snark to vulnerability. Everything you're saying about Jennifer is when Mike lets her rip, I always talk about how Jennifer is is always the hardest to cut. And I always qualify that as being a compliment, but it's because she's always giving you so much amazing things. It's difficult to sort of cull that down and, and modulate it so that you believe it. And it's not all over the place. Hilarity in one moment and tragic and trauma in another. And it's it's like, oh, how do we do this? So we're just not like flipping up and down. So, you know, all over the place. So it's a total compliment to her and like and, and her talent. All those nuggets that she gives you. It, obviously, just it's just a lot more work. And look at the result. So when you're working with a performer who is really ad-libbing a lot, the person they're playing against, it affects them too, because they're traditionally like more traditional actors where they memorize their lines and they do their lines. But if they're playing against somebody who's doing all these other crazy things, a lot of times, you know, they lose their way. They're not really sure. They're trying to ad-lib too. They get caught up in the moment and it can sometimes derail their performance. So that's why it makes it a lot of work because you have to find the pieces that fit together. Did you have a proudest scene, like where you were proudest either of the way it turned out or the way that you were able to manipulate it or just a most difficult scene? I think in season one, my favorite scene was the scene with Jennifer on the boat when she tried to scatter her mom's ashes. And that's because of the writing. You know, it was this sort of tragicomic moment where this sort of ridiculous, insane person that you don't really very highly of, you suddenly realize that she has all this depth and pain and, and wound. And then also Jennifer was ad-libbing up a storm and, and really, you know, gave us some doozers in that moment. So that was really fun. And then in season two, I really liked, I, I had so much fun in episode two, cutting the sequence where the girls, the two Italian, and so funny. Those actors were so wonderful and talented, and I just couldn't have enjoyed it more. And in episode six, there was, it was sort of building up. It was like the the crescendo to the end of the season. And there were just a lot of juicy 
sequences. The farmhouse where the DeGrasso family goes, you know, and Bert realizes that you can never go home. A lot of the really emotional scenes. So that was satisfying. And then Tanya was going crazy sleeping with the male prostitute, <laughs> the, the, the Coke dealer. And it was just so much really juicy material and, and shot so beautifully. And those were all challenges and, and really a lot of fun. So, John, what about you? Oh, gosh, am I cheating if I just say all of it? <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, cheating. Like, that does not... Yeah, okay. The thing I love about cutting the show, you really get to play and flex all the different muscles, the heavy, dramatic, emotional scenes. You can play with like action and fighting and, and then the comedy and the laughs and cutting fun montages. It's like, it's all there. I love and am proud of the scene with uh, with Ethan and Harper in the finale when they come back and, the, you know, he, he slams the door and he's like, you fucked him and they just start, you know, they start fighting. And so there's that. And then there's just the fun of cutting action with the Cameron and, and Ethan fighting in the ocean. Like that was so much fun to do. And wait, can I just say, I loved John cut that, that episode, that sequence where there were, they were fighting on the jet skis. That was the net very next thing I was going to bring up. Cause I was like, like, so as far as montages, I had so much fun with that. You just get to be so creative. And I think it was fun. It was dynamic. And it told the stories. I loved how you found that piece of music. I think it was one of those things that sort of like worked in harmony with each other. Like I first started by finding the pieces to tell the story of their sort of playing chicken in the standoff and finding all the right beats and moments. And I you know, roughed it out, constructed it. And then, you know, like, all right, there's, this is one of those moments. There has to be music here. This, I'm just listening and listening and listening and all these things. And then I heard that one song and it was like Eureka. It was, I actually just laid it in just roughly. And it was one of those beautiful moments. People know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you cut something and you drop in the music and miraculously all the beats of the music line up with what's happening and you're like whoa wait a minute how did that just happen you know i i have a little bit of a theory though like of, of why that happens and i think as editors we have this internal sort of rhythm there's this rhythm and musicality to it all and i think when we're cutting it's inside of us and it's just it's just there so then when you drop the music in you've already done it internally in the and the music is just kind of lines up that way. And I think that's kind of part of what it is. It's like, yeah, we have that. We feel it. We have that meter with us. And we're just then you drop it in and boom, there it is. Did you have to uh, cut for time at all? Or were all of your edits like, I don't know, trimming dialogue kind of thing? Were all of those more just to streamline the story? And that's the only real purpose of it to keep to keep the pace of the scene. We had to cut a lot of time, especially in season two. They were running very long. Yeah, they were like 80, 90 minutes, right, Heather? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. and we had to cut them down to 60 minutes. We didn't have that experience on season one. Season one was pretty easy, but season two, it was actually pretty, it was pretty hard because Mike, he's a very strategic storyteller. Like he's not a guy who writes a bunch of extra stuff that you can get rid of very easily. It was a journey to to figure out how to make it work. 
ultimately we got there, but some episodes are over an hour because we just couldn't do it. Six is like two or three minutes long and seven, they let us keep long because we, yeah, you're right. We just couldn't. Especially with comedies. That's always the challenge to try to be as economic as possible. And sometimes you surprise yourself. You think you can't live without something and then you take it out and it's, and it works. So you just have to experiment. You mentioned, Heather, how great the writing is. Yeah. And I always hear of like actor bait, that writing is is actor bait. You hear, you see this great writing, you're like, I'll be able to get a great actor for this. What about an editor? Mm. Now, are you able, do you look at projects like this and go, I have got to be on this because the writing is so phenomenal? I wish I could say that happened more. <laughs> 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 wait wait till the wga loses the ai battle and everything's written by ai oh god i hope not uh i try to hold out until i have that feeling i turn down a lot of things i turn down things that i'm not interested in serial killers or you know there's a lot of things that if i just if i don't connect with even if it is good Sometimes even if the writing's really good and I'm not interested in it and I don't want to hang out in it for six or nine months, I won't do it. Um, I have to really feel like it's something I want to spend my time and my energy on. Thoughts, John, about writing and, and its draw to you? I always try to do things that I think I'm going to enjoy and and spend time with and you know I'll hold out as long as I can until you know you just have to work. I do enjoy the work even if it's something that I'm not necessarily immediately drawn to, I'll always find something in there that I I enjoy about it and kind of like just sort of accepting the challenge. Sometimes I like to challenge myself and and do things that I am not comfortable with that are going to keep me up at night and give me anxiety because it's like, oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. I don't know what I'm doing. Earlier on, I, I just took everything. And I think it it's only been rather recent where I'm at in my career where I can think a little bit more about the projects that I want to take. Not only the directors, but also the producers, you know, that's so important. And and whoever the studios are or whatever. That's important too, for sure. And are those people that you uh, are always familiar with, or do you have to reach out to a, your either your agent or other editors to go, oh, hey, you worked with this guy. Is this going to be okay? Or I asked my um, agent, and sometimes I'll ask other editors who've worked with people, but sometimes other editors don't really want to say... I don't know if you really get real information, but I think from an agent, you can get the gist. Yeah, they know a lot of the players. So I'm always thinking about what the editor is choosing, why you're choosing things. As a ed fellow editor, I figure, oh, there had to have been coverage of that. Why didn't he use it, for example? And the example that I have is Tanya's on a yacht and she realizes something's bad's going to happen and she takes off. She runs to the bathroom or I think it was the bathroom or bedroom. I'm assuming that there's coverage of the other people going, oh my gosh, there she goes. We got to go chase her, but it's not there. I, th I think there's great story reasons for that. Can you explain why you chose to stay in her POV? I personally was trying to have fun with the idea. Now, by this time in the, in the story, as much as, as now certain things have come to light with Quentin and his ulterior motives the, by then the audience goes all right quentin's not the guy that 
we think he is. That we know. But is Quentin the guy that's that's trying to murder Tanya? So like that kind of question I was still trying to sort of play with as long as I possibly could. I, I was hoping that even though the viewers are like, yeah, this guy's up to something. I was still trying to at least play with the idea of it still as much as possible. Like just maybe it's still in her head, even though Quentin has bad intentions, maybe it's not exactly what she thinks it is. And so she's being paranoid. That was the kernel of thought of why Mike and I chose to stay with Tanya and have it be her, her point of view. Yes, when she got up, we have all the guys freaking out, looking at each other, rushing to the door, banging on the door, frantic that, oh no, like our plan is falling apart. But it was just, to me, in, instinctively, I, it's just more interesting not to see all that and be in Tanya's head and play with the idea that, yeah, that's like, okay, I know something's up, but maybe she's just paranoid here. And, you know, it's a bolder kind of way to go. And we cut it that way. And once it, it was in that way, we didn't play around with showing the coverage of the other guys because we, we just sort of knew that's how we wanted it to be. I, actually, I, I was there when, when we were shooting all that. So I was, I was in Sicily when we were there and I was on the boat with him and we were able to talk about it. So going into it, we, we both agreed in that, at that, in that moment when we were shooting it, what we wanted to do, but we had it. And just in case you never know, we just stayed true to what we were talking about doing and cut it that way. And it just felt so, so right to us. It just felt like that's the way it needed to be. I think that's why that that sequence was so powerful in a way. It was because it was sort of a departure and it was really subjective. When she comes out of the uh, bathroom, and she's shooting everybody, you know, I think you're in a one and you don't really see what she's seeing or anything. And um, I thought that was just really cool and powerful because it just makes you feel a lot more for her and it makes it more original and personal. And it, it's not sort of like a clinical shoot em up action sequence. And uh, it, it felt more like heartbreaking and tragic because you were really with her. You know? uh, the other interesting choice that I, and these are all choices I liked. I'm not, I'm not complaining about any of this stuff or disagreeing with any of it. It's just things that I thought of, like, I bet they had coverage of, of other things. And, and it's interesting to me not to use it. The other one that I was thinking of was her going over the side of the boat is played very cleanly it's almost uh you know you could have done you know expression on her face and the splash in the water and none of that happens talk to me a little bit about that decision of the simplicity of the edit of of that yeah i was there for that as well and that and i was we were, there were a lot of discussions that was tough because it wasn't just we're dealing with stunt performers and we're dealing with the logistics of how are we going to sell her hitting her head on the on the dinghy below and it just didn't seem right that something like that would be cut up i think we need to see this all happen in one shot like i really just need to see her 
fall, simple, clunk. We need something where it just happened. We just hold on the frame. How do we like sell it in one shot without cutting it up? And it required a little bit of VFX and things. You know, we're able to sort of get all the emotion we needed onto Tanya in sort of her tight profiles as she's popping up onto the side of the boat. And we're there for that. But then you think, oh, she's made it. She's in clear. And then to just sort of die such a silly little death. That's kind of what you do. You're like, all right, let me imagine how that feels or how that plays if it's cut up with all the angles and you, you visualize that and you're like, that just doesn't feel right. This is what feels right. How do we get this in a one -er? They They framed it up and we figured out how we'd pull it off with the effect and that's what it was, yeah. What kind of collaboration were you able to do either together or how did you interact with Mike as you were cutting separate episodes? You're upstairs, I'm downstairs, and Mike would sit with me and work with me and give me notes, and he'd go up to Heather and back and forth. We had more time in season one to have fun and collaborate, and this was such a, a sprint. I just had my head down just trying to get through my episodes, unfortunately, just had the blinders on doing our own thing. And and Mike was the one that sort of would go between us and he'd take things that Heather cut and put it in my episode. Or there was a scene that he lifted from one of my episodes and it went into one of Heather's episodes. We still would watch each other stuff and talk about it, but it was a little bit more of all hands on deck. We just kind of need to get through. That's true. And John is so great with music. He he helped me out with music in certain places. And I was really grateful for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I think that I would look at stuff Heather was doing with performance and character and things like that, that I would watch something and be like, oh, interesting. Like, for some reason, I'm believing Harper much more than I am in, in what I'm doing. I would take inspiration from the things, you know, Heather was doing there. And that's kind of how I think maybe we helped each other this time around. Thank you very much for being on Art of the Cut. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, congratulations on your Emmy nominations and uh, good luck with, with the voting. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to John Valerio, ACE, and Heather Persons, ACE, for joining us on Art of the Cut. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Holfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know but to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.